0: Welcome to our second episode of Soccer City, a weekly program that highlights the impact of soccer on our daily lives here in New York City. The show comes to you in three segments, a community portion that we call Soccer on the Block, plus the global game celebrating the passion of the beautiful game across the world. Today, the author of The Away Game, the epic search for soccer's next superstars, Sebastian Abbott, He uh, takes a remarkable look at a unique scouting system in Africa. And each week, uh, we take a close look at the New York City Football Club, who set a franchise record on Saturday, beginning the MLS season with three consecutive wins. We kick off with soccer on the block. Junior Villegas, he was born in Peru and moved to New York City with his family when he was just five years old. First, it was Washington Heights, then the Bronx, and now East Harlem. Junior is a site director for Saturday Night Lights and a coach when needed. SNL, a signature youth development and violence prevention program across Manhattan created by the district attorney's office with sports, including basketball and volleyball. While well, Saturday Night Lights soccer program, it was initiated in 2014, and it made perfect sense for Junior to get on board for the outset with a sport that has had a massive impact on him personally.
1: When I was young, I never really had uh, any programs that I that I knew of, or was able to get connected to, um, but I did love the game, and the game had a really positive impact in my life. It was probably one of the only things going on positively in my life. But I see now that just beyond the emotional impact that it can have, it can also have like a lasting impact in your in your education, in your relationship with others, in your physical. Well-being, and then just socially, it just helps you get get motivated and connected with other people who are on the same path as you.
0: One of the young players that Junior instructed and guided was Emily Campos, born in the Bronx, an athlete who was looking for an outlet. She had never played soccer before. She was 16 years old, but she found a willing group to take her in.
2: When I came across um, a program called Saturday Night Lights, it was a co-ed program. Um, for the, the there was more girls in the younger group than there was an the older group when I got there, there was only one girl, and then when I joined, she stopped coming, so then I became the only girl in the program, and I, I saw that as a challenge. I'm not going to stop going just because it's, it's a bunch of boys, and I'm like, the boys should have also the same opportunities girls have, and I was going to train with them, practice with them. This was a, like just to learn to be better as a team, and they developed my skill, so by the time I went back into, for, that was all through the, during the summer, so then by the time I went back to um, high school, I became captain of my soccer team. And um, one of the lead scorers of PSAL, so it was it was really really awesome.
0: The high school of Inventor- environmental studies for Emily Campos, who is a perfect example of what active youth programming can do for a community, including young females who are not always welcomed on the athletic field by the boys. Hence. The birth of the girls' program for Saturday Night Lights. Although Emily was a bit insulted at first,
2: I was really hostile. I was like, oh, "What do you mean the girls can't play here?" I'm like, "I came from here, and I'm 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 just as good as the guys." But then I saw that the girls needed this in order to f- have a safe space where there was no guys to come and tease them. There's, it's not not to worry about their looks or how they played. It's 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 a it's a family that they joined, and they're here to learn. They play, get skill, and. It's it's been a long way. We went from ten, having ten consistent girls to over forty, fifty girls that come every single week. And with that, the older groups also bring their younger siblings. Where there's little girls that also have that, like they play in the schools and they're like, oh yeah, the boys never like to pick me because I'm not I'm not good enough. And I'm like, well, we're gonna teach you. So then we started getting the little girls, and we just have a, a big program for them as well.
0: Well, she was once a student in the Saturday Night Lights program, and now the chair of the Youth Leadership Council while attending classes at Fordham University. Our well, former coach, Junior Viegas, he's gratified to know that the young children and teens in the program are finding benefits and support that might otherwise be lacking in their life. At
1: every age you see kids handling different sort of issues and everybody needs a different approach, but the game is what brings you in to programs like these and then the coaching staff with all their different experience can help them tackle their issues in different ways so so it's really like it really comes down to the coaches and and what they offer as far as their, their knowledge and their experience and we have a wide variety of of coaches on
0: staff. Well, a coaching staff that now includes Emily Campos.
2: I'm really lucky that I, I, I found a program like this and I'm really lucky that they, they helped. They gave me all the, the all the skills Um, so they developed me as a coach because there's not, also, again, there's not that many female coaches either so they're starting to see more female coaches get involved and they're like, oh look, that's another option I can do if I want to do that as a career. I can coach as well and it's like they're starting to see that they can relate to us, they can open up to us more and I feel like we've, we've had such a strong relationship with the girls now that they're getting more comfortable to just ask us for anything and for, for me I just this is just inspiring just to see how like what opportunities I can provide for them and based on my experience.
0: For the boys they meet at Corsi Community Center on Saturday nights while the girls play at PS 57. A group there to provide support for both the boys and the girls. The NYPD officer Raymond Ortiz said that the frequent encounters with the young people in programs like Saturday Night Lights benefits everyone.
3: We've been coming so often now that uh, between the boys and the girls' sites, you know, they see us on the streets. They say hi. They're more comfortable, and even their families now get to see us more. And it's better for our community relations as well because if there is a problem, they're not afraid to approach us and being that we know a lot of them if they do get in trouble you know we have a a more personal knowledge of who they are it it, it wouldn't be a bad interaction between us in that case.
0: And Ortiz who has been in law enforcement for nine and a half years in the city exclaimed that the relationships formed between the children and the cops has had a positive impact on crime prevention because he says that unfortunately teens commit uh, a majority of the crimes in the area.
3: We can't do our job without the community. If the community is not working with us, and we're not working with the community, nothing's going to get done. Because you know, it, being being a reactive uh, department, you're just you're you're responding after the crime already happened. But if we can work with the community, and the crime can continue to go down, it benefits everybody. It benefits us as police officers, the community, and and everyone involved because. You know, when, when crime's down, it, it's easier on our jobs, and it's, it makes the community safer.
0: A diverse community with people like Junior Viegas there to mentor those that are less fortunate.
1: We have a team huddle at the end of each session uh, in our program, in SNL, and the message was just that our program is a reflection of, of the society that we live in, the diversity that, that we have in the city, and everything we do in the program, from, from shaking hands as, as you enter the building... To, to making sure everything is clean in the facility is a reflection of what goes on in society, is a reflection of, of the city, of New York City.
0: And Junior, uh, he says that when the Peru national team is playing, there is nothing else going on in the world for him. And he is making plans to go to Russia this summer when Peru competes in their first World Cup since 1982, well before Junior was born. And in future shows, by the way, we're going to hear the sounds of Saturday Night Lights. Aspire Football Dreams. It's a humanitarian project aimed at empowering thousands of 13-year-old boys in developing countries to demonstrate their skills and have a chance maybe uh, at an educational scholarship or maybe even a chance to fulfill their dreams of a professional soccer career. It's uh, part of what inspired a new book called The Away Game, The Epic Search for Soccer's Next Superstars written by Sebastian Abbott. And Sebastian, kind enough to uh, join us today on Soccer City. Sebastian, how are you doing?
4: I'm good. Thanks so much for having me.
0: You're quite welcome. And uh, having a chance to uh, review this and read a a, a bulk of it, uh, I I find it fascinating. Did I have it right that the Aspire Football Dreams was your inspiration for the book?
4: Yeah, so the book is about um, the largest talent search in soccer history. In fact, I think it's probably the largest talent search in in the history of all sports. And uh, basically the story is that over the last 10 years, uh, Qatar, through Aspire Academy, as you mentioned, I held tryouts for over 5 million young boys, uh, mostly in Africa, looking for soccer's next superstars. Um, And every year, the scouts chose a handful of kids to train to become professionals at a billion-dollar sports academy in Doha. Um, The whole program was led by a Spanish scout who helped launch Lionel Messi's career at Barcelona, and the process was over 1,000 times more selective than getting into Harvard. So... You know, it's a, it's an amazing story, and uh, it's been quite an odyssey over the last few years researching and writing it.
0: Yeah, that youth director for Barcelona, uh, Josep Colomer, uh, he, he's sort of the protagonist in this story. I mean, it's it's all based on fact and true, but it, it's written in a way where where he seems to be the chief character.
4: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting backstory um, of how he came up with the idea for this massive talent search called Football Dreams. You know, he was working as the youth director at Barcelona, and while he was there— he went and scouted in uh, Senegal in West Africa, and he had an agent taking him around to a bunch of dirt fields in the country and showcasing a bunch of young kids there. And he just realized that the amount of undiscovered talent in in Africa was just immense. And so he thought to himself, you know, if I could somehow conjure up a a more blanket talent search, and he was just thinking about Senegal at the time, you know, the players I could find will be unbelievable. But he thought it would probably be too expensive even for the world's top clubs, but then linked up with a Qatari Sheikh, who's one of the richest men in the world, and found out there was somebody who would be willing to finance his dream.
0: Well, let's stay with Qatar for a moment, uh, certainly when you uh, you hear about this country it's a bit polarizing. Uh, there are, you know, there's empirical uh, evidence, it would seem, to indicate that uh, they may have bought the rights in a corrupt way for the 2022 World Cup. So there are uh, more than a few people who uh, w- were certainly upset that uh, they were even awarded uh, this This World Cup in 2022, and a lot of that is based on the fact that there's not much of a soccer culture there yet. Mm -hmm. uh, How do they fit within uh, the the picture of uh, aspire football dreams? It it would seem that it's putting a positive spin on what's happening in Qatar.
4: You know, interestingly enough, football dreams started several years before Qatar bid for the World Cup, but. You know, the program has sort of remained shrouded in mystery until now, and the background was that one of the world's richest men, as I said, uh, a Qatari named Sheikh Jassim bin Hamad al-Thani, who was heir to the throne of Qatar at the time, decided to make it his mission to, to build a world-class Qatari national team, and so spent a billion dollars to build the Spire Academy, and then they started scouting uh, in Africa and South America for young players to bring to Qatar because with only a few hundred thousand citizens, Qatar didn't have the population itself to produce a, a world-class soccer team. And and this program, although it's you know not caught the uh, headlines as the Qatari World Cup did, also created quite a bit of controversy because, you know, people believed that Qatar was looking for these young players in Africa to naturalize and play for their national team. So there was a lot of pushback uh, when the program started.
0: Well, has any of that happened? Any of the the naturalization to, to help push the Qatar program?
4: No, it's interesting, you know, that they got a lot of criticism at first. I think, you know, that the Qataris always say, well, we just wanted these players to train with the local Qatari players and raise the level. But I I think that they, at the beginning, had uh, plans to potentially naturalize some of them. Qatar has a long history of naturalizing foreign athletes and having them compete for Qatar in in international competitions like the Olympics. But they got a lot of criticism at first uh, when they launched Football Dreams. And so over time kind of backpedaled and said that the kids would play for their own national teams in Africa, not for Qatar – but Qatar has continued to naturalize African players outside of this program. And so when Qatar appears for the World Cup in 2022 for the first time, you're going to see a lot of African players on their team. Well,
0: well when the uh, the brainchild of this in Doha, the Aspire Academy, uh, without the soccer culture uh, uh, I enjoyed reading about some of the coaches that you had at the beginning and and the Qataris who were uh, attempting to play at at a level, uh, well, they weren't quite used to. They were uh, used to something a a little bit more on the uh, elite side uh, Mm -hmm. with their training academies back in Europe, some of the coaches you Mm -hmm. brought in. So what what ended up happening at first, and perhaps this is how the the scouting mission occurred, is that African players were needed to, to fit the bill
4: yeah exactly. I mean they you know when when Sheikh Jossum came up with this idea that he wanted to build a world class cuttery national team, you know he hired all these European scouts and coaches, and the first thing they did was basically held uh, tryouts for every boy in cutter, which they could do because of the small size of the country and they quickly realized that yeah that the local players definitely they weren't quite up to snuff in terms of the numbers they they would need to produce a true world class team. And so that's why they brought in these these African kids to train and and hope to improve the level of the team, to put some pressure on the local players to hopefully help them improve.
0: Sebastian Abbott, our guest, uh, he, the author of The Uwe Game, The Epic Search for Soccer's Next Superstars. And uh, you y- talk about the hours of informal training or no training at all that uh, the African boys Put in you. You describe uh, scenes along uh, the beach in Africa. And uh, some of the soccer balls the creative ways that they make a ball and they play hours on end and I, and I always think of Anders Ericsson, the uh, the 10,000 hours to master a skill mm-hmm. and here uh, it would uh, can you correlate that at all in terms of the, the technical ability of these young men
4: yeah I mean I, you know I spent months traveling across West Africa doing research for the book and you know you really see kids sort of playing in every space you can find I mean as you said I saw them playing on the beach in Senegal You know, I saw them playing under a highway overpass in Nigeria, in a cemetery in Ghana, kind of anywhere that they could find space, they would play. And they would play, as you said, for thousands of hours. And and it's definitely one of the reasons why, you know, kind of the technique and and vision that they develop over time is is so good. And in fact, research has shown that one of the greatest predictors of potential and uh, of a kid having what it takes to become a future star is this sort of game intelligence vision, the ability to make the right decision on, in the field in a very dynamic setting. And they found that the best way that kids develop that is not through formal gra- games or uh, official practice. It's this street soccer, this pickup soccer that so many kids in Africa and South America play so much of when they're growing up, and that's why those places have produced so many good players over the years.
0: Yeah, you produced the research, the formal practice versus pickup soccer players with better game intelligence engaged in almost one-and-a-half times as much pickup soccer than the other group. And to take that a step further, you uh, talked about another group of researchers uh, who uh, were comparing players at a Premier League academy who received full-time professional contracts at the age of 16 with those who didn't and were let go. And what you found there is that the uh, players who were given contracts— and we're talking about uh, competing between the ages of six and twelve. The players given contracts engaged in more than twice as much pickup soccer as those who were let go. To me, that's case closed. This is yeah. this is how you yeah. develop.
4: Yeah, it, and it's really interesting. I was uh, I was actually having coffee with Sunil Gulati the other day, the former U.S president of the Soccer Federation. And, you know, he said it's one of the things that the U.S. has really struggled with because, you know, there's not as much of a culture of that kind of street soccer, pickup soccer in the U.S. as some other places. And so one of the things they've really grappled with at the youth level here is trying, well, how do you how do you figure out how to structure that kind of unstructured play uh, in the settings you have in the U.S. where kids are in a lot of formal practices and games? But can you recreate that kind of street soccer, that pickup soccer that the kids in Africa and South America are playing so that kids here in the U.S. can develop in the same way.
0: The away game, the epic search for soccer's next superstars, the author Sebastian Abbott. Sebastian, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. The UEFA Champions League draw was last Friday and the quarterfinals are set. Liverpool versus Manchester City. City's only loss in the Premiership this season was at Anfield. The Reds holding on for a 4 3 win, perhaps the most entertaining match played in Europe this season, and the first leg of their Champions League quarterfinal, will be once again at Anfield. Sevilla takes on Bayern Munich. Barcelona, the champions a couple of years ago, they will meet Roma. And Juventus versus Real Madrid, a rematch of last year's title match, won by Real Madrid at the Millennium Stadium in uh, Cardiff, 4-1. On our next program, David Amoyal, who covers Italian soccer like no other for Gianluca DiMarzio, ESPN, and others, He'll join us to break down the UCL, in particular for Serie A sides Juventus and Roma. At halftime of the New York City FC home match against Orlando City SC on Saturday, no goals for either side. So you could understand if the 18,584 patrons at Yankee Stadium needed a question answered. I, I know we asked it during our broadcast here on WNYE. Could New York City score and win without David Villa, Villa, who celebrated his 100th match with New York City by scoring the game winner in the 2-1 victory over the Galaxy. Last week at the stadium, had suffered a calf injury during that match and was unavailable for Orlando City. His replacement in the starting eleven, first-year forward Ishmael Tujuri Shradi, the five-foot-six Libyan national, he capitalized on an error at the back to open the scoring at the 62nd minute. And Sasha Kleschen, the former New York Red Bull, making his Orlando City debut played a poor ball into pressure, and that resulted in a Maxi Morales goal 12 minutes later. New York City defeating Orlando City 2-0 to, to extend a franchise record with their third straight win to open the season. Orlando's Yoshi Yotun delivered a difficult back pass that caught Lions goalkeeper Joe Bendik on an in-between hop, and the six-foot-two keeper's attempt to clear was served directly to the feet of Tanchuri Shradi, who moved the ball from that dominant left foot. He likes it on his left, He pushed it over to his right and then slotted it past the startled Lions keeper in the 62nd minute.
3: I think uh, my my most goals is uh, with the left foot because I have left foot. My right foot, I must um, be honest, is not so good. But uh, today I I needed the right foot and the right foot was here. And so it's great to, to be score uh, one goal with the right foot.
0: All right, In this game, Tajiri Shradi became the second player from Libya to start a match in Major League Soccer. Orlando City SC left back Mohamed El Munir, He was the first when he cracked the lineup of the Lions Opener versus D.C. United. Tajiri Shradi and El Munir exchanged jerseys at the conclusion of the match.
3: We changed that, uh, the jersey. We take a little picture on there because it's great that uh, new two uh, Libyan guys that play in MLS And I think uh, it's important that we keep continuing on. But I think the MLS is a very, very great
0: league. New York City head coach Patrick Vieira has claimed throughout preseason and the beginning of the regular campaign that the transfer from Austria-Vienna is a legitimate goal scorer.
3: Ishmael is a, is a really good player in a one against one. He's really good in a really tight, small space. He's really comfortable with the ball and he's got pace. And uh, you can just see the way he takes his goals today. I think he was really calm, composed in front of goals, and and he's a goal scorer.
0: Tajuri Shradi's first goal in a New York City kit, New York City F.C atop the Eastern Conference and the only team in MLS to secure all nine points through the opening three matches. Orlando City, they've managed only one point from three matches to begin a season where aspirations are dictated by a single element, the club's first postseason berth, providing an additional burden for Sasha Kleshtian and his teammates.
5: Oh, we have pressure on ourselves already. We've had pressure since day one. All the guys on our team know that uh, we built this team to to be a win-now type of team this season, and you know we can't wait too long to get things kick-started before we put ourselves in too deep of a hole. So, yeah, the pressure. On. We, we know it. We've got to do a little bit better. Everybody's got to step up, and, and everyone's got to do
0: more. Question uh, unfulfilled after his Orlando City debut, he'd been brilliant in the past against NYC. One goal, 10 assists in 10 games, all with the Red Bulls. Well, one of Question's college teammates at Seton Hall University was my broadcast partner for Saturday's game, the former NYC FC defender Jason Hernandez. Jason, how you doing today? Doing very well, Glenn. Good to be with you again. Thanks, man. Well, it, 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 Sasha, it's someone you know quite well, uh, his comment uh, about pressure. We're just three games in, but it, it sounds like he's just being honest. There is a 34-game schedule, though.
5: With all the big moves that Orlando made in the offseason, they understand that uh, this season they're all in. You know, they're all in with uh, the coaching staff, with Jason Christ and his guys. And they're all in with the players that they brought in, and so uh, in a perfect uh, it would. They would all have an immediate impact, and they would kind of hit the ground running and, and be getting results right away. And so uh, they don't want to get the season to be rolling on, and they're digging themselves into deep of a hole to try and climb out, and always be a climbing an uphill battle for the rest of the year.
0: How do you think New York City was able to contain question and, and get the clean sheet? You know, obviously the the,
5: the strength of New York City uh, comes to the middle of their field. Uh, the spine of their field is very, very strong with Ring and Herrera and. and um, Morales and these guys who kind of shored up the, the midfield and, and really put a lot of bodies in there and make it difficult for other teams to play through. And so when those guys have the majority of possession and can kind of take up space, it really minimizes the chances for Orlando. And I think we saw that by the kind of limited uh, access that, that Sasha Question was able to find space and find the ball throughout, throughout
0: the match. Hey, let's talk about one of the guys who played an important part of this shutout, New York City's left back Ben Sweat. You didn't play with Ben while you were with uh, City uh, in the Bronx, but uh, you've had a chance to see his progress. He was a trialist last preseason for New York City after two years with the Tampa Bay Rowdies in the uh, North American Soccer League. New York City has lost just five of the 29 matches that he has started since in MLS when he made his debut in Columbus in Week 8 last year. It was the crew who drafted him in 2014. He never played a match, Greg Berhalter just didn't see it. He's a guy that a lot of people respect in terms of his talent evaluation, but uh, he didn't see it, and now look at him, Jason.
5: New York City is obviously really thrilled with the progression and just the entrance of Ben Flett to the organization. I mean, just a guy who really just gets the job done whenever he's called upon. Uh, I think if a match calls for him to be more in the attack and, and get forward and, and try and create a little bit, he has the ability to do so. And if um, they need a little more defensive help, that match Uh, come on match day, he's willing to put in the defensive work and be solid on that end. So he's really given them a a lot of options there on the left side. Obviously, um, being able to get the nod ahead of a guy with the ability and the pedigree of of, of Mata, it says all that you need to know about his performances and what the, the staff thinks of him.
0: Yeah, he's definitely one of the feel-good stories for New York City FC. And Sweat, he's very grounded and he's profound when discussing his good fortune.
5: There's a lot of players that, that get in my situation and, and get you know stuck in the cracks and, and lost in the system in the United States. And you know, it's just it's timing and it's being patient and going through the grind of it and uh, you know getting the right opportunity. And New York was my right opportunity.
0: Yeah, what do you think, Jason? He's 26 years old. Uh, time not on his side when we talk about the U.S. Men's National Team, but before we get to that, uh, he he makes this comment about guys that are out there that don't get a chance like him, and you've probably seen a lot of that yourself.
5: I think uh, you know, unfortunately, in, in the U.S., I think there has been a kind of an emphasis put on uh, the resume and the reputation and and these kinds of things that that come that come with a lot of players from overseas. And I think there are a lot of young American guys who maybe get overlooked in their early years uh, just because. They don't have kind of the wow factor associated with their name, but really the wow factor is is what you see come Saturday nights. And, and uh, under the light, Ben Sletters performed time and time again. He's shown you um, the quality and the ability that, you know, a young American player can have. And I think sometimes there are players who are late bloomers and just need a, a year or two of, to get some games under their belt, get, kind of be able to adjust um, over a longer stretch, maybe in a in, in a lower league or to in a developmental league, and, uh New York City's benefiting uh, from that time now because Ben sweat has been a really really uh solid contributor to
0: that do you think uh, being 26 years old is too late to be seen uh, you look at who Dave sarakin just announced a 22 player roster to come in for a couple of friendlies coming up 17 of the players are under 24 years old do you think sweat is worthy of a look
5: a guy like Ben Sweat, I think it's a pretty uh, it's a little premature to talk about national team stuff for him uh you know he's had one good year under his belt, and uh, if he matches that with another good year this year, uh, there's no reason he shouldn't get a look. I mean, age is uh, a factor, but the reality is if you show yourself to be one of the top two best la- left backs in our league, uh, you deserve a look. And if he can do that and, and, and make, his case for, make case for himself, then there's no reason uh, he shouldn't receive a call.
0: Jason, uh, you were called into a U.S. camp at one point years ago, Uh, did not appear in a match. Your parents, Puerto Rican descent, so you've been capped three times for the Puerto Rican national team. But more importantly at the moment, you've got relatives in Puerto Rico who have endured the great pain in the aftermath of the Hurricane Maria last fall. Well, as uh, of the end of February, the New York Times reported that hundreds of thousands are still without power, contractors are starting to leave the island. Jorge Gonzalez Otero A local town mayor in the central part of the island said, quote, imagine I have people here without power for five months who are 80 years old, disabled, bedridden, and they were just beginning to see people 50 meters away get their electricity back. And even your grandmother, I I remember reading a story about you. She had some health issues and and desperately needed a generator. And it it took you uh, a pretty good bit of time to, to actually be able to help her out, right?
5: Yeah, Glenn. I'll tell you, it was one of the more frustrating things I've dealt with in my life. Uh, and just trying to simply get a, a, some supplies and a generator and things shipped over to my grandmother, who um, you know was without power, and that was going to be a big concern. Uh, it was a big ordeal, and it was you know going through lots of red tape and calling uh, different people, getting fed to different people, and then being sent back to the, to the original people. And um, you know, even some instances where it kind of price gouging and you know one person quotes me a certain amount of number and then uh you know two people later it's three times that number and it just it kind of became a a fiasco and so I was really fortunate enough that I had the platform that I could reach out to some people um via social media and they could kind of point me in the right direction and
0: uh
5: it turned out uh, it turned out all all good uh for my family members but there were some people who obviously weren't as lucky and didn't have the resources that I had.
0: Well, he's a longtime defender in MLS, uh, most recently with Toronto FC, where he won an MLS Cup in 2017, former New York City FC defender, Jason Hernandez. Jason, thanks so much for sharing your story, man. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. You're quite welcome. And thanks to everyone for listening to Another Soccer City, heard every Tuesday, 1 o'clock on WNYE New York, 91.5 FM. And if you missed the show live, you can listen back on the TuneIn app. This is Glenn Crooks. Have a great day, everybody.